Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, we are going to be picking up right where we left off on Christmas Eve in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, which short, uh, takes place shortly after Jesus' birth. So if you have your Bibles, you can op- to open up to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 36, and I'm actually going to read all the way up to 38, which is not printed in your order of worship, so you can listen as I read. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would indeed be present with us right now as we hear your word. And we know that many of us have come from very different places. Many of us had very difficult Christmas with family and friends. Some of us come off of um, great Christmas time, and some of us, um, yeah, have felt lonely. Some of us have had hope. Father, wherever we're at this morning, wherever we find ourselves this morning, may you meet us. Father, may you lift up our head so that we could see the grace of Christ again. This Christ child who has come to make the whole world new. May we see him with fresh imaginations. And Father, may we worship him as these two, Simeon and Anna, did. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I uh, have had a funny ongoing conversation with my five-year-old daughter, Nora. And it started about a year and a half ago when we were watching Sesame Street. 
And she asked, how do those guys get on Sesame Street? So I started to explain how puppets are made, as if I know a lot about puppets. But Nora quickly interrupted and said, no, Dad, I know all about that. But what about the people? Are they real? And I said, yes, they're real people. Maybe you see where this is going. She said, then, how do they get them in there? Now, I did my best to explain, but it clearly fell short because her follow-up question was, so are all those people dead? And some time had passed, and I thought she had come to peace with people on TV being both real and alive. But the other day, the Weather Channel was on, and she asked, is that weatherman real? And I said, yes, he's real. And she asked, but if he's real, then how did he get the power to tell the weather what to do? I thought, great question. Now, apart from me learning that I don't uh, understand technology well enough to explain it to a five-year-old, I also was able to take time to reflect on what was behind Nora's question. What was she really asking? Because she, uh, she doesn't know anyone who has the power to order the weather around. She's seeing something that doesn't square with what she knows about how the world works. And she was asking, Dad, help me make sense of this thing that doesn't fit into my real life. Now that feeling that Nora has, that what she's seeing and hearing is strange, that she's not sure how to make sense of it, is something that Luke intends for us to experience as we enter into his gospel. In just the first two chapters of Luke, he records astounding event after astounding event. There are angels appearing left and right to John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah, to Mary herself to a bunch of random shepherds. The Holy Spirit is on the move, making babies jump in the womb and opening mouths to prophesy. You know, if we're honest, some part of us has to ask, is this real? Are these characters living in the same world that we live in now? Because this is a lot to take in, and we're only in chapter 2. Now, I think that there are a few ways that we can respond to the strangeness, the otherworldliness of the Christmas story. The first is we could simply just write it off as fiction, call it legend from a time when people were uh, less sophisticated. And so even if some part of this story is true... The supernatural has no basis in reality in the real world. Now, the second way we can respond is to sentimentalize the Christmas story, to tame it, to box it, to make it a warm, cozy, silent night. And I think in some ways, this is more troublesome because it allows us to insulate ourselves and escape from the trouble and the darkness of the real world in a kind of chicken soup for the soul kind of, kind of story. Now, the third way, I think, is to hold up this story to our real lives and ask, what if this is real? What if this is true? And what would it look like for us to embrace all of the mystery and the beauty and the suffering of Christ's coming and to allow ourselves to imagine how glad tidings could radically reshape the landscape of our life and our world?
Well, I can tell you what it looked like for old Simeon and Anna. It looked like living in hope in a God who cares and is active in his world even when it feels like he is silent. This moment in the story confirms that it is indeed our world, our real lives, with all of their complexity and suffering that Jesus entered into and came to save. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's back up for a moment and situate ourselves in the story. Forty days have passed since Jesus' birth. And his parents travel up to the temple in Jerusalem so that they can present their firstborn son to the Lord and offer sacrifices for purification, as was prescribed in the law of the Lord. And it's there that a man named Simeon approaches and recognizes the Christ child. This is an amazing moment. Now, we're not told a lot about Simeon, But Luke tells us that he is righteous and devout and that he was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. Now, he isn't a priest like Zechariah, but Simeon has an extraordinary encounter with God. The Holy Spirit has told him that he would not die until until he has seen the promised one. Now, Luke takes pain to be able to show us that it is the Holy Spirit at work here. Because he says that being led by the Spirit, Simeon walks up to Mary and Joseph, whom he has never met, takes Jesus out of Mary's arms, holds him up, and praises God, saying in verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the same good news that the angel proclaims to Mary and the shepherds. The king is come. God has finally sent his rescuer. Now at this point, what's happening in our story fits well within the rest of the Christmas story. Good news, glad tidings for all the people. But what Simeon says next to Mary is surprising. In verse 34, he says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Church, these are foreboding words. Simeon is pointing the way forward to how this child will rescue the people and the whole world. And these images are jarring. This first image, that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, is drawn from passages from the prophet Isaiah, where God is portrayed as setting up a stone over which some people stumble and fall. However, this precious cornerstone will not disappoint those who trust in it. As Simeon is saying that this child is Jesus. This stone is Jesus. And his words point towards a life and death struggle that Jesus' coming will ignite amongst God's people. 
Now, this second image of Jesus as a sign that will be opposed points to the opposition that will arise against this child. You know, you only need to read a couple of chapters later where we see that Jesus will polarize people. And those who find his kingdom threatening will respond with violence. Simeon's words force us to look beyond the warm and sentimental Christmas story that began in a manger in Bethlehem, forward to the path by which this baby will rescue the world. And he's saying that God's salvation has come, but it will look very different than we might have expected. He points towards the very real darkness in the world and reminds us that this baby has come not to distract us from it, but to confront the darkness and overcome it. With Simeon's appearance, the, the, the story, the Christmas story, is quickly becoming a story about suffering. Now, Simeon isn't done. Simeon also warns Mary what this will mean for her. She has given birth to a child who will absorb the pain and the brokenness of the whole world. And as a parent, as a mother, she will bear the cost of it as well. She will watch helplessly as her son is rejected by the very people that he came to rescue, by the very city that he offered the way of peace. She will stay when nearly everyone else will abandon her son to be with him as he breathes his last on the cross, stripped like a common thief. And Mary, who Luke tells us, stores up these things in her heart, surely feels the weight of these words. The Christmas story is heading into darkness and trouble. And yet, and yet, despite all of this, Simeon calls Jesus the consolation of Israel. This word, consolation, speaks to the longing for healing and restoration from the losses and miseries of living in a broken and fallen world. It speaks of God's coming to restore human flourishing and revive all that is broken and lost and has been thrown away. Consolation is the comfort that God brings by his divine human presence. And it will be Jesus' life and death and resurrection will account for all of the darkness in our world. Light has come into the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. You see, this is the fuller picture of the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, if you're anything like me, then you are almost always surprised by suffering in your life. But the Christmas story means that God is not, and that his redemption is coming in its midst. So if we find ourselves in a season of suffering and difficulties, it doesn't mean that we're in the wrong place or that God has forgotten us. In fact, this is the world that Jesus was born into. I think it's true that we cannot adequately celebrate the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of light shining in the darkness, unless we acknowledge and mourn the trouble that touches 
all parts of our lives living in this broken world. The trouble of dealing with ongoing sickness and the uncertainty about how things will turn out. The trouble of financial struggles and the fear of not having enough. The trouble of strained relationships that we just don't know how to fix. Simeon's words are a balm of hope for all who feel the weight of the darkness. Hope that lifts up our head towards the one who has come down to be present with us. Simeon recognizes him. And so does an old woman named Anna. Simeon was not the only one who had eyes to recognize God's salvation in the temple that day. As Simeon is holding Jesus, this baby, this old woman shuffles over to Mary and Joseph and begin, begins praising God for this child and speaking to everyone who was hoping for this day to come. Now Luke tells us that she was 84 years old and that she was a prophetess and that she had been a widow for most of her life and that she had devoted her, her, her life to worshiping God in the temple day and night. And like Simeon, she was devout and righteous. This is a woman whose life has been shaped by death and loss and decay. And yet Anna's pain is answered in the Christ child's coming. Because this is what Isaiah says about the one Anna is waiting for. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And when Anna sees the Christ child, she sees redemption on the horizon. She sees real life flesh and blood hope. Hope that no matter how tough things get, no matter how much it feels like things will never change, one has come to make all things new. He alone has the power to change hearts and lives and circumstances. He brings healing where there was once shame. He establishes justice and health in a city that only knows corruption and violence and decay. Church, Hope is alive and it is breathing. And I wonder, I wonder how it is that Anna and Simeon look on this baby and recognize the promised Messiah. What spectacles do they have that they put on that they can see salvation? Well, I think this question gets at the heart of the most important theme in Luke's gospel. Luke wants us to see the kingdom of God as a great reversal of the order of the kingdoms of the world. And you know what? Nowhere is this clearer than we consider the absurdity of those who get drawn into the drama. A poor, unmarried couple from a backwater town. An old, low on the podium toll priest named Zachariah and his barren wife Elizabeth. 
uneducated shepherds, old Simeon and Anna, who are ready to die. You know, you read through the, the Gospel of Luke, and he continually reminds us that the least and the last and the lost are becoming the greatest and the first and the found with Jesus coming. When we think of Simeon and Anna and all those who have eyes to see the king who has come, we see the living, breathing beatitudes that Luke records just a few chapters later in chapter 6. We see the poor. We see those who hunger. We see those who weep. We see the outcast. And you know what? This is exactly what prepared them to recognize Jesus. God prepared them by stirring up in their hearts a longing for comfort and relief, a longing to be put back together, to be restored to the full humanity for which we were created. They were looking for the very thing that each of us sitting here aches for, longs for, wholeness, freedom, You know, I think this is a good place to pause and ask ourselves, what is God stirring up in us? How is he stirring up a desire to be made whole? Where is he stirring up dissatisfaction for the things that we have ordered our lives around? And are we, or could we imagine being open to believing that the God who worked in the Christmas story is alive and working now. As was true of Simeon and Anna, these longings that God is stirring up in us are meant to drive us to Jesus who offers each of us living, breathing hope. Hope for all sorts of people who have all sorts of reasons to be heartsick. Luke sets up his story and makes it clear that things in the world are shifting in the favor of the heartsick, the weak, and the poor as this new baby rolls in. He intentionally contrasts the wonders accompanying Jesus' birth with the way that Caesar's reign was announced to the Roman world at the very beginning of chapter 2. Caesar comes in and he crushes the people he governs. And Jesus comes in and he allows himself to be crushed for our sake. Jesus will be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. And punish so that you and I could have peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace in our own selves, and peace with creation. God has come to bring shalom that transforms our greatest sorrows, our sickness, our discouragement, and our loss. And he invites each, each one of us to live within the rule of his new kingdom in which life triumphs over death and joy comes in the morning. And that hope 
looks forward to the day that is coming in which, in the words of the famed hymn writer Isaac Watts that we just sang, No more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Amen. Amen in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.